The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. This fall, we've been just slowing down and sitting in the smoker of Romans 8, low and slow. That's what we've been up to here, seeking to get just tender and, and tasty. We, we've been seeking to get the, the good gospel smoke flavor of Romans 8 deep into the meat of our souls. And we've said that Romans 8 is just brimming with flavor, right? Brimming with glorious gospel truth for us to just relax into in the arms of Jesus. And I love Romans 8. It is so comprehensive, It shows us that God really has thought of everything. Now, today's passage, it has a slightly different flavor to it. It has a slightly different feel to it than what we've seen up to this point in Romans 8. There's not an explicit command here, not an explicit exhortation on how to live, but there is a very implicit one, multiple implicit ones, actually. And what Paul is doing here in verses 12 through 16 is he's telling us, All this good gospel truth, he's telling us, apply it now. Apply it. All this good, slow, smoked gospel truth, it it actually is to make a difference in your life, or at least it should. The glorious truths of justification and no condemnation and us having the Holy Spirit living in us now and fulfilling the law through us and being promised resurrection and eternal life. But the point of all that isn't just so that we would have good theology and and some sweet thoughts written down in a notebook. This stuff changes your life. There's practical application here. Last week, I said that verses 9 through 11 of Romans 8 show us how to die. Remember that? How to face death. This week, verses 12 through 16, show us how to live, how to face life as those for whom all the preceding truth is true. How does a Holy Spirit-indwelled person live? How does the, the new obedience of a believer work? What's that supposed to look like? Well, this morning in this passage, Paul tells us, and he, he, he frames it out for us in terms of identity and activity, that there are three identities, either explicit or implicit, here in our passage, as well as three corresponding activities. Number one, first identity, we are debtors. We see this explicitly in Romans 8, verse 12, that Evian just read, so then, brothers, we are debtors. We are, you and me, as Christians. Notice Paul addresses this identity to his brothers or his brothers and sisters, those who share in faith in Jesus. Those of the family of God were debtors. Every Christian everywhere is a debtor. And that sounds a little weird, especially if we have good theology, right? If we have good theology, we know that everything we have from God, everything that we have is from God, including our salvation, right? We didn't earn it. It's a gift. It's all by grace. We received it. Is Paul now saying we got to pay God back for all that? Is salvation like 
a gift at Christmas time from, from that person. You really weren't going to get them a gift, but they got you something and now you feel obligated. You know what I'm talking about? Is that what's going on here? It's not like that at all. See, there's two ways in which we can be indebted to someone. One's like that, or to switch up the illustration, one is like Godfather indebtedness, right? You know the mob boss? The mob boss where, where you're indebted to the mob boss, right? You, when you're indebted to the mob boss, you belong to him, okay? He's, he's likely done something for you. Now you're in his debt. You're under his rule. And what does the mob boss say? Right? He says like, hey, after all that I've done for you, you know, like that's, that's, what, he, that's what the mob boss says. You owe me. And the mob boss, of course, has mob chores for you to do, his dirty work, you know, putting hits on people, whatever mob guys do. I have no idea, actually. But, well, actually, I do because I've watched some movies. But um, this kind of indebtedness, if we listen to it, it says, often it says, I don't really want to do this, but I have to. I don't want to do it, but I have to. That's what the kind of uh, Godfather indebtedness says. I don't have a choice. I owe him. He'll kill me if I don't. <laughs> I got to pay him back. Now, praise Jesus that our God isn't a little G Godfather. He's a good father. <laughs> we are not indebted to him in the way of a mom boss. Instead, uh, think of any like huge, massive production, epic like hero movie, battle movie that you've ever seen, you know, like the, the big ones the, the, with the cast and the, the, the war scenes and, and all of that. Think of the, the biggest, baddest hero battle epic movie you can ever think of, right? And um, where, where the hero saves the life of someone else. You got one in mind? Like um, Shrek, you know? <laughs> and there's this scene in the original Shrek where Shrek leads Donkey and Fiona out of the castle. Do you remember this? It's actually like 20 years old now. Um, the dragon's chasing them. He's chasing after Shrek and Fiona, and he's blowing fire out of his mouth, and they cross the little bridge thing, and they finally get away, but he's shooting the fire out, and the bridge burns up, and it falls down. They make it safely to the other side because Shrek's been pulling Fiona the whole way, and the dragon's stuck back there in the castle, right? And what does Fiona say to Shrek on the other side? She says... You're wonderful. She said, you're a little unorthodox, actually, but um, thy deed is great and thine heart is pure, and I am eternally in your debt. <laughs> what does she mean by that? D does she mean from now on, whatever you ask of me, even if I hate it, even if I hate it, I, even if I really don't want to do it, I'll do it anyway because, well, I owe you and I have to pay you back. No, she means in, in a different, deeper way I owe you my everything. I owe you my allegiance. I owe you my life. You're so incredible. You've so delivered. Me. How can, I can never possibly pay you back. I'm eternally in your debt. That's the kind of indebtedness that Paul has in mind here in Romans 8. We can't pay God back. How could we ever? And that's not what he's asking for. Paul, instead, is, is talking about our allegiance, our, our very life. He's talking about us living in such a way that declares all that God has done for us. Look at the text again, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, to be a debtor of the flesh is to continue living according to the flesh, gratifying its desires, giving in to its impulses. 
See, the flesh says to you, doesn't it? The, the flesh says, you owe me. More often than not, it sounds like this. I owe it to myself. Culturally, we have a very high duty to self ethic that runs deep into our souls. It sounds like this. Go ahead. Just a couple more drinks. You owe it to yourself. It's been a hard day. Just a little more scrolling. You know, the socially acceptable addiction of our culture. Just a little more coveting. Just a couple more hours of work. Just a couple more slices of pizza. You've worked so hard. Just a a little momentary peek at that explicit video online. You deserve it. Giving in to my anger just a little bit. Giving vent to it. So much pressure. You owe it, or at a bigger scale, you, you owe it to yourself, right? To follow your dreams. Even if it trashes your marriage and family. And listen, a million other ways. And what Paul is saying in verse 12 is, you don't owe your flesh anything. In fact, in verse 13, he says, if you live that way, as a debtor to your flesh, if you live according to the flesh, you die. Meaning there's terrible trouble going that way. And the end result of allegiance to the flesh is death and judgment. Ask yourself this morning, what has your flesh really, really, what what has your flesh ever done for you? Hmm? Oh, sure, you've had some good times, you know? But was the joy of those good times, was the pleasure of those good times, was it lasting or fleeting? Did did you feel sick about it later? (laughs) Filled with regret? Or, Or just empty? Not quite satisfied? Or from another angle, has your has your flesh ever I don't know, redeemed you? (laughs) Counted you righteous before the creator of the universe? Paid for your sin? Propitiated the wrath? Declared over you no condemnation? Given you peace and eternal life? So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. To live according to the flesh? No, instead, implicit here in context, which has been all about this contrast of flesh and spirit, we are debtors instead to the spirit, to God himself, to live according to the spirit. I mean, think about it. If you're a Christian, God has removed all the condemnation you deserve and put it on Jesus at the cross. He's put a new heart in you. He's made you alive reborn. He's put his spirit in you and he's fulfilling his law by his spirit through you now. He's given you a new mindset, life and peace. 
He's adopted you into his family. He's given you brothers and sisters in Christ who care for you and pray for you and encourage you. He's given you meaning and purpose for your life, strength to endure suffering. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. And he has promised to raise up your mortal body on the last day and give you eternal life in heaven with him where there's no tears, mourning, pain, death, none of it. Look back across your life. Like, think about it. Where does true happiness come from? Where is the lasting joy and the lasting pleasure in your life coming from? Is it from the flesh? Or is it from the spirit? Friends, we are not debtors to the flesh. We are debtors to the spirit. We owe him thanks for everything good in our lives. We owe our flesh nothing. We owe God our everything. Like Fiona from Shrek. You owe him your allegiance, your life. He's so incredible. He's so delivered you. He's completely orthodox. (laughs) How could you ever pay him back? You can't, but you're eternally into his debt. So we are debtors to God. That's the first identity in this passage. And therefore, we are to live for him. That's the corresponding activity. Secondly, now, we are mortifiers. Mortifiers. Do you like that word? I made it myself, right? Um, We are mortifiers. Now, this identity is implicit in the text, unlike the debtor one, which is explicit. You tracking that? We are mortifiers. That's the identity. And we put to death the deeds of the body. That's the activity. Now, this identity is implicit in the text, but the activity is very explicit in the text. Look at verse 13. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, the word mortify, which I built the word mortifiers from, um, it, it comes from the old King James translation for put to death. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. That's the old King James, okay? Now, what does it mean to mortify? Mortify the deeds, well, it means what our more modern translation actually says, right? To put them to death. One dictionary defines the verb that Paul uses here this way. It means to to kill someone. So, you know, killers as an identity didn't sound very good for a Sunday morning, so we went with mortifiers. But it, the word means, it's used in other places to, as to kill someone or hand someone over to be killed, especially of the death sentence and its execution. Mortification, I hope you see, is intense. It's declaring war on the old life and fighting for the new. And it's not self-punishment. It's also not adding to what Christ accomplished on the cross for you. But it's waging war, killing and dwelling sin, the sin that remains in your life. Mortification is also active. I've said that there is so much great gospel truth for us here in Romans 8 for us to just relax into in the arms of Jesus, and that's true. But listen, the Christian life isn't just about relaxing. It isn't just about resting. 
in Christ. There's work to do. And part of that work involves killing sin in your life. And so mortification is intense. It's active. It's also ongoing. The, the wording that Paul uses here is in the, in the present tense, denoting this ongoing and continuous, repeated, even habitual action, meaning we never stop seeking to mortify sin in our life. We never stop seeking to put to death the deeds of the body. It doesn't matter how old you are in years. It doesn't matter how old in the faith you are. Your physical and spiritual age will never change the tense of this verb. John Owen, the 17th century English theologian who literally wrote the book on mortification. I mean, seriously, it's called On the Mortification of Sin in Believers, right? Uh, can't recommend it. Great read. It, it's hard. It's going to make you slow down. I think the Spirit actually works through that in some powerful ways. But Owen, he wrote this about the mortification of sin in our lives. This isn't the first time you've seen this quote. And he says, the, the choicest believers, obviously us, the, the choicest believer. I'm sure he's writing this to us from, you know, 400 years ago. Choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. And then he says this, he says, sin does not only still abide in us, but is still acting, still laboring, laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone, but a sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still. So ought our contrivances against it be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even where there is least suspicion. Listen to what he's, he's saying. Sin is never fully dormant. It doesn't hibernate for the winter, like the bats in my house, you know. Praise God. It, it, it's never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet. Sin is sneaky like that. And therefore, our mortification is to be ongoing. So, mortification is intense, it's active. It's ongoing. We are to be putting to death the deeds of the body, putting to death sin in our lives. You and I are to be mortifiers. It's part of what it means to live as a Christian. It's part of our new identity. And it's not some optional add-on. It's not something you can choose to do or not to do. Leaving it alone lets it grow. Now listen, it's it's easy to get a little lax in this, to grow a little lax, especially after you've been a believer for a number of years. Get soft with our own sin. We can start to coddle it a little bit, our own little darling sins, you know. We think we're in control, but we're not. Jesus himself taught us in places like Mark 9 to take sin very, very seriously. Additionally, though, we live in a world that makes all kinds of allowances for sinful behavior. Our society's tolerance for sin is, is massive. I don't even like that word. 
And so everywhere you look, we're encouraged to sin. We're encouraged to live how we want. You do you. Whatever impulse you have, follow it. In fact, our culture says it's actually inauthentic to not follow it. Whatever it is. We're encouraged to indulge. It's in the marketing. It's in the movies. And the result of living in this world is that we, become, we can become numb to it a little. And it all gets normalized. And therefore, we grow a little complacent. Paul is telling us here, don't let sin get normalized in your life. You must never grow complacent. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. (laughs) Hey, when was the last time you got serious about sin in your life? Has it been a while? What's a, a darling sin in your life that if you're really, just really honest today, you're, you're kind of coddling it a little bit. Playing with it, think you got it under control. What if you tolerated in your life that you, you know, deep down, you know, that's got to go. When was the last time you got tough on yourself? Verse 13 is a call to action for Christians. Is, is greed getting an upper hand in your life? Hmm? What about pride? What, what about jealousy? Are you giving in to moments of, of jealous reflection? Telling your, letting, letting your mind go down paths that they, they shouldn't. Kill it, Paul says. Judging your brothers and sisters in Christ. Giving yourself over to lust or selfishness or gluttony or sloth or envy. Kill it, he says. Don't make nice with it. Don't minimize it because the world does. Kill it. That's what the Bible says. This is the way to life, Paul says. This is the way to true joy, true peace, true and lasting happiness, true and lasting fulfillment. Kill it. And you might be thinking right now, boy, can we go back to verse one? I like that verse one stuff a little bit more than this. That no condemnation business was really nice. Um, Being free from the law, it sounds like you're putting me back under it. That doesn't sound like the gospel. Listen, if that's what you're thinking right now, You need a better understanding of the gospel. You need an understanding of the gospel that includes sanctification. Listen, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? We're not going back into that. That's all still true, but the liberation that we enjoy as those who have been set free from the law of sin and death does not grant us permission to get soft against the dwelling sin in our lives. Coddling it. Growing complacent with indwelling sin in our flesh. No. We, we live here in this already and not yet state, right? Already we've been delivered from sin. But not yet is our body completely rid of it. 
And therefore, we're to live as mortifiers, putting to death the deeds of the body. I love how one old theologian says it. He says, the believer's once for all death to the law and to sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying sin in his members. Instead, it makes it necessary and possible for him to do so. And that last part, Understanding the, the possible part here is really important. Really important. See, Paul doesn't just tell us here what to do. He tells us how to do it. Isn't that nice? If by the Spirit, he says, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we're to put the, to death the deeds of the body. That's the what? And we're to do so by the Spirit. That's the how. Mortification by the Spirit. That's Paul's point. Trying to set you free from the flesh through the flesh doesn't work. Have you tried it? I have. You just try with all your might. Just try harder and harder and harder. And sometimes you get a little bit of success momentarily. But then it turns into that game of whack-a-mole, you know? It's like, it's, it's, it keeps popping its head back up. And it's going to pop up again. How then do we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit? Well, first, remember that you do, in fact, have the Spirit. That was last week. Every Christian everywhere, no matter your age or stage, has the Holy Spirit. He's in you. But you're, you're not left merely to your own resources to battle against sin. The enemy would love for you to think that that's the case. He wants you to think and to believe, I am completely alone and impotent in this fight. But the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, we were told last week, lives in you. And I'll just go out on a little bit of a limb here, right? But if the Holy Spirit can raise Jesus from the dead, I'm pretty sure he can take care of your pornography problem. Right? Remember that you have the Holy Spirit. Secondly, realize that you cooperate with the Spirit. You cooperate with him. I love how John Owen talks about the work of the Spirit in mortifying sin in our lives. He says the Holy Spirit works in us and with us not against us or without us. That's so helpful. He works in us and with us. He's in you. He's working with you, not against you, not without you. This isn't a passive work on your part. You, you've got to exert some effort, right? You've got to deny yourself. You, you will have to make changes in your life. You will have to say no to certain situations that lead to temptation. You, you will have to make some radical decisions. And as you do, the Holy Spirit is working too. With you and in you. Not against you or without you. My favorite way to illustrate this is with how farming works. So like right now, like literally probably right now, my dad and brother are in the field harvesting corn. Um, back in the spring, they planted that corn, didn't they? And um, they planted the corn, and even though they were the ones that planted it, they can't actually make it grow themselves, can they? They can't. 
But that doesn't also mean that they just sit back and did nothing after planting to harvest. No, they cultivated the corn. They worked the ground. They spent a lot of money on fertilizer. I hear about it all the time. (laughs) Those input costs, right? They spent a lot of money on, on fertilizer, a lot of time in the field fertilizing, killing off those weeds. They watered the heck out of it, irrigating. No one would ever say that their efforts are useless. Would they? No one would ever say that their work wasn't hard. We know farming's hard. And yet we also would never say that they were fully responsible on their own by their work to make the corn grow. Only God brings the growth. There was still a lot of work for them to do. That's how sanctification works in your life. We work and he works. He works through our work. We cooperate with him. He works in us and with us, not against us or without us. All of your obedience, all of your fight and sin, all all of your spiritual disciplines and, and prayer and serving, what they do, that they are ways of presenting yourself relationally to the Spirit for him to do work in you and through you. How do we mortify sin by the Spirit? First, we remember that you do, in fact, have the Spirit. Don't forget that. Secondly, we realize that you cooperate with the Spirit. And then number three, knowing those things, knowing that He's on your side and in you and with you and for you, be honest with God. Be honest with Him. Talk to Him honestly. Even about the desires of your flesh. He can take it. He's not overwhelmed. He knows all about it anyway, so why not talk to him about it? (laughs) Just you and him having an honest conversation through prayer. See, for a lot of us, somewhere along the the way, we picked up this idea that God is really only interested in things that are good, religious, clean, and tidy in our lives. And so we only ever pray good, religious, clean, and tidy ways. That's not what Paul has in mind here when he says, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. That presupposes, I hope you realize, that there's some deeds in the body that need to be put to death. No, you can talk to him. Honestly. You can approach him and and bring to him the broken realities of your life. You can pray about the real desires of your heart, even the underlying desires for you to sin. You can say to him, Lord, look at how much I want money and security in this world. Look how much I am aiming after money to get me security in this world. What is wrong with me? And what are we going to do about that? Or, Father, man, I snapped at my spouse earlier today. What was driving me? Show me, Holy Spirit. Change me. God, I really want to escape right now. Whether it's through alcohol or zoning out or like literally getting in the car and driving as far away from here as I can imagine. And I bring that desire to you. You can talk to God like that. You can tell God you're lonely. 
You can tell God you're tempted. I bring it to you, Lord. Spirit of God, meet me here in this loneliness. Meet me here in this temptation. I can't kill it on my own. I need you. Work in me and through me. Opening yourself up for the Spirit to work. Why do we have a third person of the Trinity? For stuff like this. And other things too. But this. You can ask him, why do I so long to be in control and have life on my own terms? Why do I live with so much fear and anxiety? Why am I so quick to anger? Help me, Spirit of God. Show me things that I can do and even more, do work in me. And listen, even some of that, if we're really, even some of that is still a little tidy, isn't it? Did you know that you can actually pray to God and tell him that there is sin in your life that you don't even have the desire to kill right now? You know that you can tell him you actually kind of like it. I mean, if we're being honest with him, right? You can bring even that to him. Lord, I know I should hate this more than I do, but I don't. In fact, here's why I like it. I know it's wrong in my head, but Spirit of God, would you create in me, deepen in me a hatred for it? Would you reveal to me the deep need of my soul that I'm seeking to meet and show me how that need is satisfied instead in you? Satisfy me, Lord. Actually do the work, Holy Spirit, of satisfying me in you. When was the last time you just got really honest with God like that? Really dependent like that upon his spirit. Trying to set yourself free from the flesh through the flesh is never going to work. You need to be honest with God and cry out to the Spirit who works in you and with you, not against you or without you. Church, we are mortifiers. We're to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And because that's hard, because it's messy and you don't win every battle, because it takes time, a lifetime, in fact, we still won't be perfected until Christ returns. The third thing, because of all that, the third thing that Paul tells us in this text is that we are children of God. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Follow the logic here. Paul's so logical. If you belong to Christ, remember last week, verse 9, if you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you are one who is led by the Spirit. If you are led by the Spirit, you're a son of God. Belonging to Christ, having the Spirit, and being a son are inseparably true for Christians. This isn't a la carte. Either all are true of you or none are true of you. And if you are truly a Christian, all are true of you. I mean, Paul's logic just keeps building and building and building throughout this chapter, doesn't it? All these glorious truths, they're not just related, they're inseparable. 
and they are inseparably true of you. You are a child of God. You're going to need to know that. You're going to need to remember that and meditate upon that in order to face life here between now and when you die or Christ returns. You're one of his beloved children. That's a third identity that Paul tells us of in this text. And not in some generic sense. You know, maybe you've heard someone say that everyone's a child of God because God created everyone. And I appreciate the sentiment of that, but it, it lacks some serious biblical nuance. It's true in Acts 17, 29 that Paul refers to all human beings as God's offspring. And yet it's also true that adoption and sonship are something altogether different. Verse 15 says that you, my friend, have received the spirit of adoption. That's got a capital S in my Bible, meaning this is another name for the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of adoption, doing the adopting work of God in our lives. And notice it's something that we receive. When? When do we receive it? At conversion. That's when. When you trust in Christ and belong to Christ and receive the Spirit, you are adopted, meaning you have a new relationship with the Father in heaven. You are not merely one of his offspring in some generic way anymore. You are an adopted son or daughter of our good Father in heaven. He has welcomed you in, and you relate to him now in the most intimate of ways. In the text, he says, go ahead and call me Abba, which means like, dearest father, or if it's not too irreverent, daddy. Daddy. This is the way Jesus taught us to pray, to our daddy. My friend Chris has this illustration. Um, maybe you've heard of the courtroom illustration before where, you know, it, it's to help illustrate the, the doctrine of justification, right? That you come into the courtroom, you're before the judge, you're guilty, you know, you're, just, you're guilty. And um, you stand before the judge guilty, but justification is the truth that although you're guilty, the judge pronounces over you not guilty because of the work of Jesus, Right? Maybe you've heard some version of that. Here's what my friend Chris adds. He says, after that, after the pronouncement of not guilty, no condemnation, the judge comes down off the stand, takes off his robes, puts a great, big, loving, gentle, joyous arm around you, leads you through a side door, out of the courtroom, and into the family room. He welcomes you in and he says, make yourself at home. And from now on, call me dad. Wow. And church, this family room of God where you're not just called a son of God, it's who you now are. You've been adopted. You have received the spirit of adoption as son. This family room is the context then for real change in your life. Look at verse 15. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, this family room of God is the context for living with no fear. 
No freaking out. Not for the children of God. You and I are sons of God, children of God, and therefore we live without a spirit of fear. All the living and all the mortifying that you and I have yet to do, it all takes place in the family room. You're never going back into the courtroom ever again. God wants you to feel loved and assured as one of his children because love and security and assurance create the relational atmosphere in which holiness thrives. In a no fear and intimate, honest relationship with him. And so you're a debtor and you live for him freely, joyfully, securely. No worrying if you're doing enough for him to show him that you're really thankful and that you really mean it. And you're a mortifier. You put to death the deeds of the body. But not in dread that if you sin again, you're going to be back in the courtroom to receive the sentencing of some spiritual spanking. There's no condemnation. You're a child of God. A child of our good Father in heaven who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness so you live without fear. Without fear of condemnation. Without fear of not doing enough. Without fear of being forsaken or disowned. Debtor, mortifier, son. These things are inseparably true of you if you're a Christian. This is who you are. This is how you're to live. And then, and then Paul adds one more thing. Verse 16. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That seems important. And it's really good. This is nothing less than the felt, God of, the felt love of God in your soul. If you're a believer, there is something in you right now that resonates with everything Paul's been saying so far in Romans 8. It might be a small resonance. It might be a big one. But something in you resonates. And Paul says that something is actually a someone. It's the Holy Spirit testifying with you. One translation says, to you. The Spirit of God bearing witness to your spirit that you really are a son of God. The Spirit internally warming you, internally convincing you that these things really are true of you. The Holy Spirit in you will do that. Assuring you, reassuring you, this is who you are. And if you're a Christian and you're here today, and you're not experiencing that, you can talk to God about that too. You can go to him and tell him, I'm reading this passage, I'm seeing these truths, and I trust in you, and I believe in you, and I even believe that it's true of others, but it doesn't seem true for me. It doesn't feel true for me. 
I'm falling back into fear. I'm freaking out a little bit. Would you remind me, Spirit of God, what's really true? Would you bear witness with my spirit that I really am your child? Would you grant me an ongoing encounter with you in order that I might grow in and gain this familial comfort? You can talk to him like that. He'd love to have that conversation with you. Maybe that's a conversation you need to have with God before you come to this table this morning. Like, Spirit of God, would you bear witness to my spirit that I really do belong to you securely and safely? Would you pour your felt love into my heart like you talk about in Romans 5, 5? Maybe before you come to this table this morning, you need to confess some sin to God. Maybe there's a stronghold, some darling little sin that you've been coddling and no one knows about it. God does. So you might as well talk to him about it. And you can say to him, I know I can't do this on my own. Let's work together on this, shall we? If you're a Christian, this sanctuary is like the family room of God. There's no condemnation for you in here. This isn't a courtroom. It's the family room. In my house, my family and I, we usually eat dinner around the table. It's a pretty normal thing to do. We like to eat dinner around the table as often as we can as a family, especially if we have others over. Um, we're going to eat a- around the table. But then there's like family movie night, right? Or sometimes for us, it's America's Funniest Videos or a Bumgarner family favorite, The Great British Baking Show, just to let you in on that, right? Um, and when we do that, that happens not at the dining room. That happens in the family room. We get our plates, fill them up with food, we get in that family room, just us, just my wife, my kids, this environment of safety, security for them. It's where we can joke and grow in, in, the, in the relational context of security. Listen, as we come to the table this morning, Jesus is inviting you to eat in the family room. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He was hanging out with the disciples, an intimate setting together. And he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he lifted it up and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, for the forgiveness of sins. For as often as we eat this bread, church, and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to come to this table, would we hear the words from verse 1 all over again that there is therefore now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, just safety, security, intimacy, 
all the relational ingredients needed for us to continue to grow. The safe context of being secure as one of your family members to live without fear while we face life. Mortifying sin in our lives by your spirit all to your glory. We are eternally in your debt. Not in a way that demands payback. But in a way that strikes us with awe over who you are and all you've done. And causes us to live our lives for you. And now would you take this bread and this wine or juice. And and through our participation in this ordinary means of grace. As we present ourselves before you at this table by your spirit. Would you work in us and with us, not against us or without us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.